Amen. So Lois and I got invited to a place called, I think it's called Pine Cone Cottage. I think I'm right, on Swain's Lake, the Wyatts. So we were all excited about that because when we came here, we knew we would have a lot in common with the Wyatts. I mean, his name is Ken, and my name is Ken, and he's a real writer, and I like to call myself a writer. And so I thought, well, that'll be a lot of fun. We'll go out there. And when we got there, we were actually delighted to find that they were serving shepherd's pie which is a good thing to serve a shepherd, don't you think? <laughs> shepherd's pie. How did yours turn out, Leo? I, I noticed on the internet. Yeah, good. So, um, so shepherds, I was waiting for the, I just sat by the phone when I saw that, and it never rang. I don't know what was going on there. Anyway, uh, we had shepherd's pie. It was great. We had a bunch of things in common, but one of the things that we had in common, oh, there you are over there, Ken and Gigi, who I didn't ask any permission to tell this story ahead of time, and I'm leaning on your good, your good spirit. So we had some things in common. We read some of the same books. And in particular, we had this author, Sheldon Van Auken, who wrote this book, A Severe Mercy, which is an amazing book. And Sheldon Van Auken, um, I actually loved the book so much that one time I called him on the phone before he died in the 90s, I talked to him on the phone. And Sheldon Van Auken was really well known for corresponding with people on little postcards with little tiny print. And when I mentioned this book, you know, Ken quietly walked over to his shelf and pulled his copy off of the shelf and opened it up and pulled a postcard out from Sheldon Van Auken. And the little tiny print that was, he was so famous for was on that postcard. He had actually corresponded with the author. What's interesting is that Sheldon Van Auken was uh, an unbeliever. And yet, things began to kind of tug on his heart. And uh, he said he was a, he was a young uh, naval uh, uh, officer. And he said that, that one, though he was not a believer, he was standing there on the bridge one night in, in the South Pacific, and he was looking out over the ocean, and there was the, a path of moonlight on the ocean. And he said he felt a tug on his heart that there, that there might be a God and that maybe he should investigate that. Later on, he wrote this. He said, I suspected that all the yearnings for I knew not what that I had ever felt when autumn leaves are burning in the twilight, when wild geese fly crying overhead, when I look up at bare branches against the stars, when spring arrives on an April morning, were in truth yearnings for him, for God. I yearned towards him. And Sheldon Van Auken uh, had a number of things that contributed to his coming to know the Lord. He had a girl named Jean Davis. He called her Davy. They sailed to England to go to Oxford. And on the way, they were on the ship. And on the ship, a lady got her purse stolen. And all of her money was in her purses back in the 40s, and she lost $400. And someone mentioned she lost this money. And so Van and Davy, that's what they called themselves, Jean Davis and Sheldon Van Auken, Van and Davy decided it would be a good idea for them to go through the ship. There were like 400 people on the ship and ask everybody to contribute $1 and they could restore this lady's money to her. And so that's what they did. They got permission to do that and they, they collected money. They did it anonymously as, as much as they could and they collected money over $400 and they gave it to this lady and she was extremely grateful. But afterward, for the rest of the time on the ship, people would come up to them and they would say, you must be Christians. And they said, no, of course we're not Christians. What would make you think we were Christians? And the people said, well, you know, because you took up a, you know, you did a kindness, you did a good work, 
that's just a Christian thing to do. And they thought that was odd. They thought, why would that just be a particularly Christian thing to do? And they also said they, they, they not only did they not believe, but they tried to avoid Christians as much as possible because they thought, they thought Christians were really odd people. As a matter of fact, it's kind of humorous the way he writes it. He gets to Oxford, and the people that he gets sponsored by in Oxford and the friends that he has in Oxford, he discovers later on, are all Christians. He's very disappointed. But he says, these were our first friends, though, at Oxford. They were our close friends. And more to the point, perhaps all five of these people were keen, deeply committed Christians, but we liked them so much that we forgave them for it. <laughs> we began hardly knowing we were doing it to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, not just of Christianity, but of Christians. Our fundamental assumption, which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that Christians were necessarily stuffy and hidebound and stupid. People to keep one's distance from. And we had kept our distance so successfully indeed that we didn't know anything about Christians. Now that assumption had soundlessly collapsed the sheer, and catch this, the sheer quality of the Christians that we met at Oxford shadowed, shattered our stereotype. Thenceforward, a reference in a book or a conversation to someone's being a Christian called up an entirely new image to us. And moreover, the astonishing fact sank home to our own contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. This is the part I found interesting in that quote. The sheer quality of the Christians that we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype. What would it be like if you had a group of people that got together and they decided that with God's help, they really would be followers of Jesus? What would it be like if a group of people got together and they decided that they would take the teaching of Jesus so seriously that they would ask him to give them the qualities that Christ followers should have, that they would actually obey his commands, they would be the kind of people that Jesus always talked about. Imagine a people like that. Imagine a place like that. And this is what I like to think here, you know, about, about Bethel. I like to think of it as a place like that. I like to think of it as a people like that. I like to think that when people come here, they aren't like confused, like, well, there's the teaching of Jesus, and then here are the people, but they don't do the things that Jesus taught. I like to believe that when they come to the Christian church that is Bethel, they find Christian people being Christian. But now who doesn't need to work on that a little bit, right? So what we're, here's what we're going to do. What we want to do is we want to take the Sermon on the Mount, one of the key teachings of Jesus. In the book of Matthew, there are five discourses, the first of which is, the, is called commonly the Sermon on the Mount. It starts out with the Beatitudes, which is a, probably an overview of the message, and then the similitudes, remember that, salt and light, and then a series of different things that Jesus says in like a staccato rhythm. And what I think it would be interesting to do, and I've been praying and thinking about this for months and months, maybe maybe over a year, and that is for us to use the Sermon on the Mount because we are Jesus followers. We are Jesus people, right? Are you a Jesus people? I'm a Jesus people. I want to be a Jesus people. 
I want to be the kind of person that people can see Jesus in me. I want to do the things that Jesus did. I want to obey the commands that Jesus gave. And I don't want to have to tell people I'm a Christian. I like for them to be able to see that I'm a, a Jesus people, that I'm a Jesus follower. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to use these, uh, this, this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, this first discourse of Jesus in Matthew, as a, as a diagnostic tool. Is that a good way of saying it? We, wanted, we don't want to analyze this all together. We could do that. You know, there are people that have preached through this passage and they've been there for years, but I'm not going to do that. But, but we want to use it as a diagnostic tool so that we, over the next six weeks, we look at our own lives and we look at the things that Jesus taught and we ask ourselves, are these things that Jesus taught really true of me? And to what degree are they true? And how beautifully are they true? And are there areas where I have had a blind spot or a stubbornness or a knot in the wood or an area where the people who know me best would say that quality is just altogether absent from your life? And so when you think about this, some good things can happen. I want to show you that there are there maybe there are four different things. There are four different things that the study would accomplish. I'm going to show you, you know, here when you think about it, reasons to study. First of all, the, probably the primary reason that the Sermon on the Mount was given was as a diagnostic tool to see, are you really saved? Are you born again? Jesus was teaching his disciples in the context of the religious kind of static that was going on around him. And the, and, the, and the kind of the ruling tribe, the ruling religious tribe, the scribes and Pharisees, they had a version of what righteousness was supposed to look like in their book, and they had perverted righteousness, and Jesus was course-correcting that. And he was basically saying, in this teaching, the, I believe the primary meaning of the teaching is to see, are you a genuine Jesus follower? read the Sermon on the Mount and say, does my life look like that? Because if it doesn't look like that, maybe it's because I'm not really a Jesus follower. But there are other things. For instance, another thing would be that, that beyond this, and by the way, in Matthew 5, 20, he says this specifically, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's going toe-to-toe eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose with the scribes and Pharisees, and he's saying they have it wrong. By adding to the law and by demanding this legalism, they're perverting true righteousness. He says true righteousness is going to be above and beyond that, which might have freaked people out because they would have thought, oh my goodness, the scribes and Pharisees are so over-the-top religious. How can I be more over-the-top religious than that? We'll get to that. But the first use of this would be, am I a Jesus follower? The second use would be, okay, this is what my life should look like. As, the, as, the, this, as I'm, you know, born again, and I'm regenerate, and the Holy Spirit works in me, this is what a Christian's life should look like. And so it's a great idea for us to take the Sermon on the Mount and to read it and to say, am I a Christian? Another idea would be take the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is really what I should aspire to. There's something more, though. It's like not only what we should, what it should like, like, but what it could look like. And this is very hopeful. This is very positive. Are you tracking with me? In other words, when you read the Sermon on the Mount and you see what Jesus said, this is what my followers should look like, well, he's also saying, this is what my followers can look like. This is what they will look like. Do you get this? This is very hopeful. Now, some of you, 
you need a fire lit under you because you're slothful spiritually and you don't really care. If, I mean, I don't know who you are. You seem like nice people to me, but you know, some of you like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm cool. I'm fine. I'm good. You need to look at the Sermon on the Mount and it needs to stir you up like, no, you're not the way you ought to be. Some of you might come in kind of beat down like, oh, woe is me. You know, I never seem to get it right. You need to hear this part. And that is, this is what your life could look like. These are things that God not only expects of us, but through the work of salvation and the work of sanctification, these are things that can be true about us. And then there's something more that's really kind of obvious, and that is that this is a kind of a way to happiness. How do we know that? Well, look at the Beatitudes. You know, we're going to read them in a moment. But, you know, what does Jesus say over and over again? When he opens his mouth on the mountain to teach his disciples, he says, this is the path to genuine, deep happiness. The path to happiness and the path to holiness are the same. Happiness and holiness, Jesus taught, are not mutually exclusive. We tend to think that way. Well, I can either be holy or I can be happy, but I can't be happy and holy. I can't be joyful down to the core of my being and still obey God. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the heart of genuine happiness, genuine joy, real fulfillment is this. And so one way we can look at the Sermon on the Mount is to say, am I genuinely saved? You should do that. Another way we should look at the Sermon on the Mount as a believer is like, these are the things that I should aspire to, and by the help of the Holy Spirit working in me, these things can be true about me. And you should take hope. These things can be true. And finally, it should be, you should recognize that maybe, it, maybe not so much it's the path of happiness, but this is, the, this, is the way, this is the way of genuine happiness. This is the life that finds genuine happiness. It's not like the party animal is happy. Or it's not like the, the person that, you know, it, it drowns himself in obscene wealth is happy. Or the person, you know, that has this whatever ancillary pursuit you might think about going after that ignores what God says is not going to be the way of happiness for you. According to the greatest teacher whose feet ever touched planet Earth, the way of happiness is the way of holiness. They are the same. So you want to read this, don't you? I knew I would get you excited about that. So let's take our Bibles now and let's open to this treasure of a passage. It's in Matthew chapter 5. And today, and, and, and we've broken this up for the purposes of our teaching. We've broken this into 14 things that Jesus' people are. And we're going to cover the first two today. Over the next six weeks, uh, 14 things, qualities that are true of Jesus' people, and we want to use these to examine our own hearts, that these things might be true about us. Seeing the crowds, Matthew 5, 1, Jesus went up into the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's how I understand this. It may be true that what Jesus did in that kind of poetic riff, if you will, is his, his overview of the entire Sermon on the Mount in an in a, in a embellished language, in poetic language. But over and over again, he's doing a couple of things. One thing he's saying is this is the heart of what it means for a person to be genuinely fulfilled and really happy. I mean, who doesn't want that? We all want that. Jesus is going right to the heart of what every person cares about most. How can I really be fulfilled and happy? But then what he's doing is he's countering everything that you would normally think would make you happy. It's counterintuitive. Now he has their attention in this poetic way, and we could analyze that. But what we want to do is we've got to hurry to the, to the next couple of sections where we show the first things that are going to be true about Jesus' people. And so let's look at the next one here. What is true about Jesus' people? Now, Jesus' people, they glorify God, but they glorify God by doing good works. And I want you to notice that here in what's called the similitudes, often called the similitudes. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, right? There are a couple of promises implied in this by Jesus. There are a couple of warnings that are given if you pay attention. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There, there are many things that are true about salt. It was very valuable. Probably to the people that Jesus was speaking to, the main thing they were thinking about because they didn't have refrigerators. And by the way, just for, for no extra charge, I want to teach you something. There is the refrigerator and there is the Frigidaire, which is a brand, but there's no such thing as a refrigerator. So don't say that anymore. Okay? It's like, don't come in here and say refrigerator because just showing your ignorance when you do that. It's a refrigerator. Okay, I wanted to get that off of my chest. Are we good? Anyway, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have, re- <laughs> they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have refrigerators. They had salt. And it preserved the meat. And that's how they probably would have immediately understood it. What is a Christian in the world? It's a person who, and we're going to see this in a moment, who through his good deeds in the world has a, a, the effect of, of retarding evil, if you will, you, you know, slowing down the corruption, the rottenness. In other words, Christians, by their good works, by the things that they do, their good works, you're going to see that in a moment, are good for the world around them. It's just that simple. Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. You're valuable and you're good for the world around you. Christians are good. When the Christian doesn't do what the Christian is supposed to do, and that is to root the the gospel in the soil of good works, then what happens is he's cast out and Jesus says he's trodden underfoot of men. In other words, the the world is going to tend to reject Christians at a higher rate who don't do what Christians are supposed to do. In other words, people that say they're Christians, but they don't behave like Christians, people that say they're Christians, but they don't have the good works that should accompany Christianity, are going to be disregarded by the world, and where they're going to be trodden underfoot of men, he's saying, you're going to be stooped, the bride of Christ that is going to stoop to do something way beneath her dignity, 
And you see this happening in our culture over and over again. And the church is, is forfeiting its, its powerful role in culture to preserve, to slow down the corruption of culture by rooting the gospel in good works and doing good. And it's doing other kinds of things which might be good, but they're, they're secondary at best to what the Bible says that it should do. What I'm getting at is very simple. What Jesus was getting at, I think, was very simple. And that is, by your good works, you are going to glorify God, and your salt is going to be good for humanity. If these things aren't true about you, it's important to understand that you might not be saved at all. Look at the next slide. Second section is salt, light. Salt, good for humanity. Light, glorifies God. Look at this section of the passage in verse 14. You're light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now in this passage, you see the one thing that it identifies as the thing that makes us salt and the thing that makes us light. Did you see what it is? What does it mean? What do you say? Let your light so shine. Does that mean we're supposed to have a sunny disposition? Not necessarily. What does it say in the text? How do you let your light shine? Looking for the good works here. Matter of fact, listen to this. This is very interesting. Um, You know, we just finished a series in Titus And we noticed that in a handful of verses over and over again, it talked about good works and the importance of good works. Listen to a bit of a survey of the Bible. Ephesians 2.10 says, we're his workmanship, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. We're created to do good works. This is a big deal. The Bible says women are to do good works. 1 Timothy 2.10, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. That widows should do good works. 1 Timothy 5.10, well reported for good works. In the list of widows, they should be well reported for good works. If she's brought up children, lodge strangers, wash the saints' feet, relieve the afflicted. If she's diligently followed every good work. You kind of have a list there of what the Bible says good works should look like. This would be true of all Christians. This would be true of Christian women. This would be true of Christian widows. This would be true of pastors. 1 Timothy 5, 25. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. Pastors should do good works. The wealthy should do good works. 1 Timothy 6, 18. Let them do good. Let them be rich in good works. Church leaders should do good works. Titus 2 and verse 7. And all things showing yourself to be a a pattern of good works. That's from Titus. You remember that. All of us should do good works according to Titus 2.14. He gave himself, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. You see, this is a major theme in the New Testament. And it's beautifully simple. How do we glorify God in our world? How are we good for humanity and how do we glorify God? By doing good works. We're believers. We're saved by grace through faith, through the process of sanctification. We get out into our world and we do good works. We don't just do the good works in and through the church, but we do our good works 
when we punch in, we punch in on time, when we don't cheat, when we don't lie, when we don't backbite, when we get something, when we, when we contribute to the good, when you take the garbage away from the curb, you're doing a good work that helps the culture that you live in. It's good for humanity and it glorifies God. And that's what Jesus is saying. Go about doing good. I love this from time to time. I wonder what I should do as a pastor. There's so many things you could do with your time. I remember that somebody said about Jesus, he went about doing good. And so I just think, well, I'm just going to line up a bunch of things to, to do today that will be, and I get to the end of the day, they will have been good things because of my own particular gifting. I, I try to move from one place to another trying to encourage people. For you, it might be different, you know. It might be that you help people with their finances. It might be that you help people with their automobile. It might be that, it might be that you give counsel to someone, but you're doing good. And you're just filling your life with good works, not so that you will be saved, but because you are saved. Isn't that interesting? So this is the, the first section after the introduction that basically says about Jesus' people. Jesus' people glorify God by doing good works. So you could examine your own life and you could say, what good works do I do? to glorify God. I heard, I heard about a family, a pastor's family out in, in Washington. And you know, they have a large family, but, and at Christmas time and at Easter and, and big holidays like Thanksgiving, you know, they like to be together and they can close everybody out, but they don't. What they do every year is they pick somebody that they know in the town, two or three, maybe, maybe could be a couple of people who are gonna be alone, who don't have anybody or maybe who don't have any resources. And sometimes these are troubled people and they will invite them into the very inner circle of their family, right into their table on the highest and holiest and happiest days of the year, and they eat with them. This couple happens to be my daughter's in-laws. My daughter has had a front row seat to this good work. And she says, it's a beautiful thing to sit at that table and to watch this beautiful family include these people where they would have been alone and get their story she said, Dad, it's just it's a beautiful thing to see. That's the kind of thing. She said one time there was a widow in the church, and she had a house trailer, and she ran out of propane at Christmas time, and she was cold, and she was trying to make do. And, the, and so the pastor and his family, they took time away on Christmas Eve, and they got a propane tank delivered out there, and they stayed out there for a few hours, and they hooked up that propane tank until the heat was on. This is what gives glory to God. Years ago, I was sitting at my... Uh, desk, and I had, we had started, a handful of us had started a little church, 130, 135 people. And we had a little, we, most of the money that came into the church had to go to my meager salary, but we had a little building fund that sometimes people would donate to because we didn't have a building, we met in an office building. And people donated to this building fund, and it was a really a meager amount. And I'd gone away to a conference, and a guy was preaching about the pouring water on you remember the altar there uh, and and the pouring water on the altar to remove any possibility that the fire came down from heaven that it wasn't from god am i making any sense and when i was listening to that i thought what we ought to do i had this crazy idea i said what we ought to do is we ought to take our money that's in our building fund and we ought to give it away to a family in our church that has a need there was a family in our church that had, a, that had three boys with Duchesne muscular dystrophy. So they had a large family, they had a small house, and he was a farmer named Glen Allen in our church. 
And I had in mind, because I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to this kind of thing, and I was altogether out of my depth. In my mind at this conference, as I sat there with my notebook, I thought, I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask the elders if they'd be willing to take the money that's in the building fund and put an addition on Glenn Allen's house. And the, the idea I had in mind was like a little bedroom addition. But you know when you have three boys with wheelchairs, you have to have wide hallways. You have to have ramps. You have to have specialized bathrooms. This family would need a 1,400-square-foot addition with a full basement, and it would be tens of thousands of dollars, way more than our church would ever have. And so, like a lot of ideas that I have like that, I went back to the elders, and they were very kind, and, you know, patronizing to me. That's really wonderful, but, you know, we'll think about that kind of a thing. One of the guys came a little bit later, and he said, you know, it's a really good idea. It's just, like, way beyond, you know, probably what we, what we could do. Another guy came and he says, well, I'll work. You know, I'll help if, if this ever gets off the ground, I'll, I'll help. Another guy came into my office one day and he said, well, I don't know if it'll ever get off the ground, but if it does get off the ground, I think I got an in with the Ellis brothers and we can get concrete forms for the basement if that happens. And somebody else came in one day and she said, I don't think this thing's ever gonna get off the ground because it's way too big, but I think I can get a, hand, a handle on a heat pump for that if they need a heat you know, source. And then I was talking about it at a baseball game one day and I didn't realize the guy that I was talking to was Glenn Allen's banker. And he said, I think if we put this in a newspaper, people are gonna wanna help. And then Mark Boucher called one day and Mark said, if we have to get a loan on my house, we're gonna do that thing. And I'm telling you, they had put a 1,400 square foot beautiful addition on Glenn Allen's house for their boys. It was all bought and paid for. And all the community got to see what happened. And I sure didn't know what I was doing. But there's something that happens when God's people, you know this, you've done it here at Bethel for years and years. It's when you're at your best, when you're helping people, when you're doing good works. We don't have to look beyond that. Jesus, this is the, this is the core teaching of Jesus. What did he say? Do good things. And when you do good things, you bless all humanity around you. You're the salt of the earth. And when you do good things, you glorify God. And everybody sees how beautiful God is. Well, here's another section. And this is an interesting one because now Jesus is going to cut right to the heart of what is it, what it about the law. And of course, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the ruling religious parties of the day, were all about their view of the law, which perverted the truth about the law. And so Jesus comes along then next and he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes and the Pharisees added to the law. They perverted the law. They distorted the law. They didn't pay attention to what the law was doing. The scriptures are very clear that there would be, that, that Jesus would come in fulfillment of the law. The ceremonial laws would all be fulfilled in Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The moral laws would be carried forward. The civil laws were appropriate for Israel. The law wasn't done away with. The law was fulfilled in Christ. And Christians who are Jesus people, they love the law but they reject legalism. Jesus' people love the law, but they reject perversions of the law. This is still true. Here's another way of saying this in Bethel people. This is so important. We have always been, 
Bi- this has always been a Bible church. Am I right? It's a Bible church. It's a Bible-believing church. Go online. Look at our church's do- It's a very beautifully crafted doctrinal statement about the Bible and about interpreting the Bible. Go online this week just for extra credit. Look it up and read it carefully. It's beautifully crafted understanding of how we look at the Bible. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't you ever, ever look at the word of God and the law of God in a way less than I do. Don't ever take away from the Bible. And then he's saying to the Pharisees, really in the reference to the scribes and Pharisees, he's saying, and don't ever add to the Bible. Jesus is saying the Bible is sufficient. It's absolutely necessary, but it's absolutely sufficient. You don't have to add to it and you dare not take away from it. And we still need to hear that today. Your, in your life, in your marriage, in your parenting, on your block, in your work, and whatever you do, you need to build your life on the promises of the Bible. You're a young person here today, and you're here because you love Jesus, or maybe you're here because mom and dad wanted you to come, and you're being good to them, and you're honoring them, and you're still thinking about the faith. Can I just tell you this? Can I just plead with you? And that is the great minds of the world have recognized that the Bible is a unique book, at the very least. The Christian church teaches it's the very word of God. So if you're a kid, wouldn't it be just really wise for you to understand the Bible before you decide whether or not it's true? Study the Bible. It's had a profound effect on the world. Study it very carefully. And then I would appeal to you, you will never find any teaching or any writing anywhere that you can build your life on like you can build your life on the Bible. Whoever does and teaches it will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever disregards it will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And then now watch people's lives. Pay attention to people who have built their lives on the promises of the Bible. And notice the trajectory of their lives. Notice the beauty of their lives. Notice the order of their lives. Then look at people who have rejected the word of God, who've rejected the Bible, and look at the trajectory of their lives. And that alone, it should be obvious to you that you should build your life on the Bible. And that's what Jesus is saying in a very simple way. And that is, you have the word of God. You have the law of God. Obey the law of God and make sure that you have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to notice a couple of passages of scripture here. As we scroll forward, and I have two passages that I want you to see in the Bible. And they are passages from Galatians that speak to us about um, examining yourself to see if you're really saved. Remember, when we look at these, think about Matthew 5.20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the first thing we ought to say is, am I a Christian? Am I going to go to heaven when I die? Will I inherit the... Jesus often appealed to this. The apostles often appealed to this. This isn't just like a sweaty Baptist thing. This is what Jesus did. He said, are you going to heaven when you die? This is just good old common horse sense. When you die, you're going to heaven. Uh, So we're going to the back up to the passage where we were in uh, Galatians there. And, And now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do these things, what does it say? They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Did you get this list? If this list characterizes you, you're not a Christian. If this list, if you're characterized by the, I'm not saying if you were ever jealous, you're going to hell. If you're jealous outside of the righteousness of Christ, you're going to hell. What the, what the teaching here of the apostle is, is that if your life is characterized by these things, it shows that there's never been a miraculous work of God in your life. Look at the next passage. And this one is from 1 Corinthians. And notice it starts by saying, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There it is again. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or the greedy or the drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Same thing. Notice the next section though. And such were some of you. That's one of the prettiest passages in all the scripture right there, isn't it? And such were some of you. You got this sad list of sinful things that we all get sucked into in some way. And he says, and this is the people that make up the church. Such were some of you, and you're washed, and you're sanctified, and you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But do you understand what, we, we can't move on beyond this without doing justice to what Jesus taught he was looking into the eyes of people that he cared about, that he loved, that would spend eternity either in heaven or in hell forever. And he was saying, don't get this wrong. Make sure that you believe. By grace, through faith, we're saved. But if there is no evidence of, of hatred of sin, ongoing good works in our life, it shows that we were never genuinely saved. There are going to be people who think they're saved because they can answer questions about theology, but they're not saved. And the way we, we know that is because their lives don't line up. Because when God does a miraculous work in you, it's got to make a progressive change in your life. And so kind of going back here now to the next, to the next slide. And we notice if Jesus' people love the law, and furthermore, they reject legalism. And, and, and there are two things that you have to understand. And that is that there, there's more than one way to sin. Jesus is kind of implying this clearly here. In other words, there are self-indulgent sinners. In the list, you notice that there were sins like drunkenness and immorality, you know, the big red-letter sins that we tend to kind of feature unless they're our problem. But then there are self-righteous sins, and both of those kinds of sins will suck a person into hell. Jesus is warning the Pharisees, his self-righteousness is not the kind of righteousness that, that, that ends in heaven. And certainly self-indulgent sins are, are going to take people to hell. We, we went to the Holy Land in 2011. And in the Holy Land, we saw some amazing things. One of the things that stuck in my mind was when we were in Jerusalem. We, we visited the, the Temple Mount. And before we went up on the Temple Mount, we went around to the south side of the temple Ruins. The temple remains. There was the city of David that sat below the temple mount. And people would come from the city of David and they would climb, in Jesus' day, they would climb these stairs and over on one side, 
there, was an, there were entry gates that they could go in the entry gates and then up further upstairs, up into the court of the Gentiles, and they'd be on the level of the temple. And then when they would exit, they would exit down those stairs and come out the other way, back onto these south stairs. The south stairs of the temple were only uncovered in the 1990s. And so it was a fascinating thing to go there and to stand on the south stairs of this temple. There were mikvah ritual baths that were there, a number of them. There were these south stairs, and they were tiered in an uneven way. And they were built in such a way that the pilgrims coming up to worship would, would have to be contemplative because you couldn't just walk steadily up the stairs. Some were longer, some were shorter. People would have to, con- and they, they, would often, you know, they would often quote psalms of ascent as they ascended these stairs. So it was an amazing thing to go to this place and to have your feet there on these stairs, the south stairs of the temple. They often would say that, that scholars, that, 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 that rabbis would teach on these stairs. It's undoubtedly true that Jesus sometimes would assemble his disciples and teach them on those stairs. And they believe, and the scholars believe, that this was the most likely place where Pentecost would have happened because it was one of the only places there in the proximity of the temple where so many people could be assembled together for a teaching. And then after they followed Christ, a couple of thousand, 3,000 were baptized, and there would be baptistry tanks, mikvah ritual baths that you go down into. The converts could have been baptized there. So now here we are in the Holy Land, and we're on the south steps of the temple. And then our guide, Bill, says something. When I went to the Holy Land, I was quiet the entire time. Usually I'm talking when I go places. Usually I'm invited to go places to talk. But when I went to the Holy Land, I was there to learn. And so I didn't talk. I took a notebook. I sat down at the edge of the crowd. And I wrote down the things that I learned as fast as I could. The only time that I would talk is when I felt like I had a good question to ask. While I was sitting there with this notebook and Bill was talking about the south steps of the temple, I asked him a question. I said, Bill, you just said these are first century stones. Would these be stones where Jesus' feet stood? When I asked him that question, he smiled and he said, take three steps down. And I walked down three steps and the stones there were rougher. They were rounded over. He said, Ken, those stones were here in the day of Christ. It's likely that your feet are on stones where Jesus' feet stood. And then I said to Lois, take my picture. (laughs) And I have this picture of me standing there with tears in my eyes and my feet on the stones where my Savior Jesus stood. I found out later on that Neil Armstrong, who's the first man on the moon, remember that? That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Neil Armstrong was a devout believer In the late 90s, he took a tour to the Holy Land and he was on the south steps of the temple and the rabbi that was there said, these are the stones where Jesus' feet stood. And Neil Armstrong got down on his knees and he said, I'm I'm more thrilled to be here with my feet on these stones than I was to take a step on the moon. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all get in a plane and fly to the Holy Land and put our feet where Jesus' feet were. But you know what's interesting? If you take God's word, if you study it very carefully, study all that Jesus said, he never gave us a command to take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. He never said to us, I want you to take your feet 
and I want you to put your feet where my feet were. Here's what he said. I want you to go next door and I want you to help the person who's sick next door. I want you to listen to somebody that nobody listens to. I want you to love somebody that nobody else loves. I just want you to be like I did. I want you to go walk in my footsteps. I want you to do good works. It'll be good for humanity. It'll glorify God. I want you to take my word seriously. I don't want you to add to it. I don't want you to take away from it. I'd like to ask you to stand right now.